Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. True independence in the world of filmmaking is very rare. The battle to get films before an audience is complicated at best. And in today's world, to get an independent cinematic voice onto cinema screens in a world of Marvel universes is easier said than done. Creative concessions are the order of the day when realizing the vision of an artist onto the screen can cost millions or even hundreds of millions of investors' dollars, and they are at stake. Studio movies run through a gauntlet of studio executives with their notes, and the effect is to sand off the rough edges to make the final product easier to go down to the widest audience possible. It's understandable given the high cost of creative entertainment. Of course, studios want a return on their investment, and their job is to sell as many tickets as possible. And even the major streamers like Netflix and Amazon have layers of studio executives who all have their own ideas to make the films, quote, better. Masters of Horror was one of the rare experiences where the inmates were given the keys to the asylum. Each of the directors had as close to total creative control as possible to express their personal nightmares in their own way. It was an amazing experience working with all these great genre filmmakers, flexing their cinematic muscles with an independence they had rarely, if ever, known. Seeing true movie-making artists working at the top of their powers without creative interference made for some remarkable work. And having been able to offer this independence to some of our greatest genre minds, writers and directors alike, was certainly one of the greatest professional experiences of my life. But in theaters, such freedom is rare and is even more rare on a studio budget. But once in a while, we get to see original works made independent of the studio system, and we get a true original voice. The budgets are low and the distribution limited, but seeing a true maverick at work is a heartening experience. Our guest, Sean Baker, is one of those truly independent voices. Though his work isn't really in the horror and fantasy genres that we normally feature here, it's exceptional movie making and deserves your attention. We'll be back to talk about cinematic independence with the maker of Red Rocket, Tangerine, The Florida Project, and other equally impressive works after this. Available now from Dread, Ditched. Desperate to escape an overturned ambulance, a group of paramedics are trapped with violent prisoners. The group quickly discover that they are the victims of an ambush, with the perpetrators hunting them down one by one. Ditched is available on demand and digital everywhere right now. Get your hands on the Blu-ray February 15th. So, Sean, thank you so much for being here. Um, I read that your initial interest in making movies came from seeing the Universal Monster movies. Is that true? Very, it is very true. Um, well, first off, I just want to say it's great to be on this podcast. I'm a big fan. I'm a follower. So oh, thank it's an you honor so to be much. here. Uh, oh. Yes, it, it is. My mother introduced me to cinema through 
James Wales Frankenstein. Um, wow. Essentially, um, when I was, I think, six years old, five or six years old, she brought me to the local library where they were showing clips from the Universal Monster films, um, the, you know, from, from the mummy, Dracula, but it was really the burning windmill sequence of James Wells' Frankenstein that uh. just burned into my prefrontal lobe. And I, I <laughs> the next day I wanted to make movies. I said to my mom, I'm, I want to make movies now. Wow. Did you <laughs> did you have a Super 8 camera or was it video or how did you start? Yeah, it was that cliche thing where I was shooting home movies uh, on, on Super 8. I mean, my own films using the home movie camera that my father got us and then graduated to VHS when that kicked in. And <laughs> um, yeah, so and then went to NYU Film School <laughs> that yeah, you went to, to, to the Tisch School uh, at NYU uh, for filmmaking. And tell me about that experience and, and uh, the value of it, what you learned that you were able to put to practical use and what you found was maybe more about, um, was more library than it was uh, practical. Well, to tell you the truth, the cinema studies program there was was fine, but probably not as good as uh, well I was undergraduate so it wasn't as probably as advanced for the undergraduates as it was for uh, the grads but I um so I didn't have much there it was more practical to tell you the truth I I was able to I was lucky enough to be one of the last classes shooting on film I think I was might have been the last class with a super eight class a super eight course for freshmen and then I moved into 60 millimeter cutting my films on the Steenbeck which was uh you know, an experience that I'm, I'm very uh, thankful I had. And, um, but in terms of, it was really about my fellow, uh, you know, my, my fellow film students, you know, people that I, I got to connect with and who I'm still working with to a certain degree. And it was, I have to say, it was primarily horror and genre that we were all bonding over and, oh. and got connected to. I mean, to, I, I just want to throw this little anecdote out. Like I went to school with Eli Roth. So yeah. he's a little bit younger than me, but I remember his enthusiasm back in the day. I remember when Roy Frumkis, who, the producer of Street Trash, came and talked at NYU and, and Eli there saying, you know, I want to make horror movies. I want to make horror movies. And wow, he made it come true, you know. And then um, I, uh, my, my, my roommate at NYU, Lanny Lawrence, is now coloring most of the restorations from Severin and Vinegar Syndrome. Oh, wow. Putting his signature on those films that made us, you know? So, wow. so, uh, so it was a real great group of, uh, you know, students that were really into this sort of um, filmmaking. And I think really, um, you know, just, just paved the way for us to go our different directions. Well, it's interesting how the genre, in particular the horror genre, incites such passion at an early age that you never grow out of. It seems if you attach yourself to horror movies and the, and the love for horror movies in your youth, that follows you to your grave. Very, very true. I, I, I think that uh, a, I, I make a lot of references, homages, winks towards some of my favorite horror and genre films in all of my films, even though they're like, you know, they're neo-realist movies, they're, they're social realist films that I guess you wouldn't ever consider horror films or genre films. Um, I'm still doing, I'm still making sure that I, I drop those little winks. I mean, I don't know if you, I don't know if you picked it up and not many people do, but the opening shot of Red Rocket is a direct 
homage to the opening shot of Dawn of the Dead. You know, oh, you, start yeah. on, you start on the <laughs> and you pull back to reveal somebody waking up and then the title comes on. That was that was my Dawn of the Dead wing. <laughs> OK, we've now justified your appearance on our show <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> completely. So who were your heroes when before and during film school? Who were the people? Because your work is in that neo-realist that could have been De Sica, it could have been Cassavetes, a number of people working, or some of the, the British uh, kitchen sink directors. Who were those heroes of yours? Yeah, okay, so I, they run the gamut. They're all over the place because, you know, I'm a, I'm a cinephile that watches all, you know, genres. And so, so for my, I think for my films though, for, for my particular brand <laughs> that I've made, I guess it is definitely, you mentioned two of them, uh, Cassavetes, De Sica, uh, but there's Mike Lee, uh, Jim Jarmusch, major influence in terms of just my approach to my career. Um, and then Spike Lee. Spike Lee was oh, uh, wow. somebody who made a splash when I was uh, a junior or senior in high school. And it was a such a splash that it actually changed my direction to a certain degree. I, I thought going towards, you know, moving towards film school, I was, I was saying, I'm going to make, you know, the next Robocop, the next Die Hard, or perhaps you make a horror film. Um, and then it was Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch's influence that made me start to say, maybe I should, maybe I should t tackle um, stuff to do with character. Maybe I should, uh, you know, uh, everyday real films based in realism. And, um, and so, yeah, so those are the guys, but I have to say, growing up, it was Tom Sa uh, Savini, it was Romero, Carpenter, um, yeah, it, that whole that whole batch that you know quite well. Yeah. So, do you envision yourself doing something within the genre that that was inspired by those heroes? You know, I would, I really would love to, but I, um, I'm almost too intimidated to. You know, I, I would um, love to, there, as you know, there's such masterpieces that exist already and it's like can i even come close to a texas chainsaw can i come close to a dawn of the dead i don't know and i'm kind of scared to take that chance <laughs> wow. so it really it comes down to me finding you know the right script finding the right idea because you know so much has been done already so i want to well, be fresh and new stylistically it would be fascinating to see that neo-realistic um uh, approach to a, a genre film, it's rarely done. I mean, the found footage films are one thing, and uh, you know, that's not the same as what Cassavetes or Mike Lee does. Where, you know, you, uh, I would say, uh, your genre in a way is renegade cinema, that is very independent, and you deal with underrepresented and marginalized cultures, in very much what 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 draws you to these people. Sometimes they're adult. Uh, adult film performers, or they're grifters, or transsexual prostitutes. Um, what draws you to that uh, underbelly of life, but with such a respectful perspective? Well, you know, I just uh, I think almost all films are, if they're personal films, their responses to what the filmmaker is not seeing enough of, or 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 perhaps just something the filmmaker wants to see more of. And so I think for me. These were uh, the, the, the communities or the subcultures, microcosms that I've 
explored and tackled are ones that I hadn't been seeing tackled properly or at all by the U.S. film and television industry. So yeah. it was my own almost selfish desire to know more and and then tackle it in a way that was responsible and respectful, you know, um, so that's really what it, how it comes about. Uh, each film is different. Uh, sometimes there's an issue attached to it. Uh, for example, Florida Project was something that directly came from the issue of the hidden homeless uh, in the United States. Um, and my co-screenwriter brought me this article about it. And so we that's how that fleshed out. Other times it's a, it's an actual, just a, it's just a community that I want to uh, know more about or perhaps a location I want to know more about. Well, you, you mentioned location and this seems to be an important part of your independent film process. You don't shoot in studios, they're all on location. And uh, I wonder how you prep the kind of movies you make, you know, how you, you go about getting the locations and planning something that feels very immediate. It doesn't feel like it has been through a, a big industrialized process. Yeah. I'm, I'm always so fearful of the big industrialized process. That's the thing. I'm so fearful that it will, it, it, it will bring an artifice. So I, th I guess in general terms, what I do is that I prep about 70%, leaving 30% up for, you know, for chance, serendipity, uh, happy right. accidents. And my producers have to understand that. Um, I, and, and it's scary, you know, it's scary, especially when you're dealing with other people's money um, right. to say, I'm not going to fully plan this day because I want to see what the what what, what life brings us. Um, that's hard for some producers to hear, as you I can. bet. Yeah. But um, but it's worked out, uh, especially with the budgets that we're working at. Um, we're able to especially with Red Rocket. I mean, we were we had we were shooting during covid um, with a tiny budget, uh, $1.1 million to shoot that on 16 millimeter film. Um, so, you know, we were really stretching the dollar and we didn't have that any extra money to throw at problems or any time to throw at problems. So we would just have to pivot away from the problem and find and just follow a new, a new direction. And, uh, and, and when you have a crew and when you have producers who support that way of, of filmmaking, then it can work out. It can work out, you know? Not and always work, perfectly, but <laughs> but working within that kind of budget, it also affords you a great deal of independence that a two hundred million dollar Marvel Universe budget would not. Yeah, most definitely. That's the that's the biggest thing, you know. For me, I I definitely would love to work in a bigger sandbox. Of you know, I would love to work with bigger tools, and maybe someday I will be able to. Um, but I'm always fearing losing that, you know, losing that creative control. I mean, I've been lucky enough where I've had final cut on all of my films up to now. Um, I would probably would lose that over a threat, a, a certain budget level um, and have to take studio notes and stuff like that. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, a, a very admirable because you have been able to put out like what, eight movies? Uh, seven, seven, seven movies. Yeah. yeah. And uh, tell me about, the move from film student to filmmaker, um, that transition of making that first feature film. Yeah, well, at, uh, I'll bring up Spike Lee again. I always saw him as sort of the model of uh, 
how you know the model to follow, especially with a uh, a young independent filmmaker. So I knew he had made you know uh, she's got to have it at 27 years old, I believe. And I my goal was to make my first film before 27. <laughs> Good goal. <laughs> and so I um it was right out of school. We just you know I just hustled. You know I worked at a uh, publishing company that allowed me to shoot a commercial for them, oh. um, and that commercial got me just by hustling. I didn't have an agent. I was just, we were New York based and we were just reaching out to local companies and we were able to make a few little commercial spots um, and amass $50,000. And that $50,000 was put right into my first film. Which so this was, yeah. th this was four letter words, right? Four letter words, a, a yeah. film that not many people have seen. It's going to actually be re-released this year uh it's been Fantastic. restored and and so anybody who's looking for it please wait because it looks a lot better we had the original 35 millimeter elements scanned um and and all that stuff but uh but so we made that film and you know i, I happen to have a little more of a crazy um uh, my 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 time of my 20s um my 20s were spent a little bit too much there was too much partying. Let's just say that. <laughs> so <Okay>. I <laughs> perhaps is not, you know, I didn't get, um, I didn't get started until a little later. So even though I did shoot my, my first film in 96, it really, it took a long time with post-production. I was distracted with many other things and it didn't hit South by Southwest until 2000. So it was four years in the making. And then after that, you know, it being that it wasn't an immediate splash, I had to, just find a way to continue working. And, and I well, let's go back to the process of writing four letter words and, and what your, your process was and your thoughts were. Obviously the film festival world has been very important to your career because all of your films have played the festivals and major festivals and, and done quite well in that regard. But this was your first time out. What was your plan? My first, my, my plan was really, uh, if there was a plan at all, it was really just about um, writing a script that, that was semi-autobiographical. I mean, it was, it was, it, it's about, of all of my films, it's the one where I would say it's the most blatantly autobiographical because it was about um, a bunch of white dudes in the suburbs, <laughs> you know, at a, at a party at night talking. Um, it was stuff that I knew and stuff that I had heard and stuff that I was able to say, okay, I don't have that much life experience yet, but I do know this stuff. And so I was able to, in the vein of uh, a combination of um, Jarmusch and Mike Lee, and perhaps a lot of Kevin Smith as well. Yeah, maybe actors. Richard Linklater. And, Linklater, uh, big time. Yeah, yeah Linklater, big time. Um, but the fact, yeah. And so this was like my... It was my film in which I was getting out a lot of, I guess, a lot of demons out of myself. Just like, this is how, this is, these are the guys that I was surrounded by in high school. And this is the story I want to tell. And, and it was really just, and the whole film is, it's not really plot driven. Uh, it takes place over the course of an hour and a half. It plays out in real time at, a, at a, the last uh, hour and a half of a, par a, a party in the suburbs in which uh, some college students are are reuniting. They're high, they were high school buddies and they're reuniting and they're just. So it's a Sakaka seven in a way, a little bit of uh, John Sayles too. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Very much so. But it was a, it was, it was also an exploration of the male psyche at the time. I, I felt that a lot of the stuff that I was absorbing and hearing was about, was, was like the angst the, of, of, of young male youth. Uh, 
And that's the stuff that I knew. And that's the stuff that I was able to just get out on paper. So, yeah. So the next up was takeout. Yes. Tell me a little about that. These first three are the ones I have not seen. I and you, that I'm, I'm, you copies very soon. But, but I, uh, I, I'm dying to, because I, I do love so much the four that I have. Um, but tell me uh, about the genesis of that and how you wanted to do something uh, different from what you had just done. Sure. Um, so I was, uh, I had to go back to school because as I explained to you earlier, I was NYU was still about like editing film for me and then the digital revolution kicked in so I actually had to go back to school to learn nonlinear editing and I went to uh, the new school where uh, with you know for uh, I would say I, I guess it's uh, extra uh, what do they call it um, continuing education classes okay so I, I took I took the avid course and and I met Xi Ching Zhou there uh, Xi Ching Zhou who I ended up working with uh, all the way up to Red Rocket. I mean, I continue to work with her, um, but we met there and we bonded over certain films. At the time, Dogma, the Dogma 95 movement had oh, made yeah. a splash. And um, so it was all natural light and no no cheating with, uh, with uh, technology. Exactly. And it also gave people, uh, filmmakers with a, a, essentially no money, <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> It gave him the pass to say, you can make a film on your mini DV camera, as long as it, it's all about the content, as long as it's, it's, it, it's good, you know, um, audiences will accept it, critics will accept it. And so that, in a way, gave us permission to go ahead and make a $3,000 movie. I mean, my first film cost 50000 on 35 millimeter. My second film in which, you know, in which I co-directed with Xi Ching cost $3,000 shot on a mini, on mini DV. And to tell you the truth, a lot more successful than my first. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so it, it was also me living in New York City uh, for several years at that point and having more life experience and wanting to explore perhaps more political issues and, and explore the, uh, the issue of, you know, the undocumented immigrants dealing with uh, smuggling debts at the time. We were living above a Chinese restaurant and got to know many of the delivery men because we shared the same stairwell together and, and, and got to know them and, and said, there's a story here. And so that really led me in a whole different, you know, a whole different direction in which I was, you know, which is probably what, is most of my work right now, you know, exploring, you know, uh, underrepresented um, parts of the United States and communities. And yeah, so, so it was really, that's how that takeout was essentially, I think, the, the, the beginning of this, of this ride that I've had. So yeah. do you think being you're from New Jersey, you went to school in New York, um, you're basically you were an East Coast filmmaker, and a lot of your your influences from Cassavetes to Spike Lee and all are New York filmmakers. Do you think that had a lot to do with the shaping of the direction of your career? I think so. I think so. I was very drawn to yeah that the the ex exploring you know urban stories. I had lived I lived most of my life in Manhattan. I just moved out to L.A. eleven years ago, so uh, most of my life was spent in Manhattan and. Uh, and falling in love with, you know, this Scorsese, Abel Ferrara, you know, Sidney Lamette approach to filmmaking yeah. and wanting to explore those stories. And those very much, uh, very much had an influence on 
Takeout and the following film, Prince of Broadway. Which right. Is Prince of Broadway is very New York. This is all about a guy with pirated goods and the like uh, making his life in New York. So tell me a little about that. And again, you seem to, even though you work within your own subgenre, it feels, you seem to change your technologies you know, um, after this, uh, with Starlet, yes. you, you know, that was something more Hollywood based, but yes. tell me about Prince of Broadway and how you actually managed to shoot on the streets of New York. Sure. Um, takeout had taught me a lot because we were, we, we had no money. So we had to like shoot in this Chinese restaurant without ever closing it down. So we had to shoot around a lot of things and incorporate a, a lot of real life. And I, I started to understand this hybrid way of filmmaking where you're combining, you know, narrative fiction with with docu style and just allowing whatever again, whatever, whatever life brings you so that we really applied that to Prince of Broadway. Prince of Broadway was and, it, and Prince of Broadway taught me a lot about the research process. That was where I had to really entrench myself. Uh, the film is about um, an undocumented African immigrant who sells counterfeit goods in the wholesale district. So I had to get to know these guys. I had to go to the wholesale district and just start extending my hand and saying, hello, I'm a filmmaker. I wanna make a film about this area and about the experience of, of, of African immigrants here. Um, and it took a long time. We had many coffees and many delis. And then one day somebody said to me, well, you should be, you should be, you should meet Prince Adu. Prince Adu is, is a fellow from the area. And he actually was an actor in high school and oh, wow. he would love to do this. And we met him eventually. Finally, we finally met him. And he said, if you make me the lead of your film, I, I've heard about you guys. I've heard rumblings about you guys in the area. If you put me in your film, make me the lead, I will help you cast. I'll help you find locations. And I will help you tell the real story of Africans in New York City. And I'm like, there you go. <laughs> you made like, your deal. <laughs> yeah. And he had, you know, leading man looks and everything like that. So it all worked out well. And we actually, you know, we, um, I, I took, I was working on a television show at the time. So I, I took um, the $47,000 that I had, um, that I had amassed and, uh, and shot it. Um, and yeah, and, and ended up making this, uh, this film that got us onto the festival circuit and actually really opened up the festival, the international festival circuit to us. Um, and, that, and you were nominated for the Cassavetes Award for this, right? Yeah, both both films were actually competing. At the same for, festival, right? Yeah, the, the Independent Spirit Awards, actually. Right, so um, they were up against each other. <laughs> yep, yep, because Takeout had taken so long to come out. They actually, even though it was made a few years earlier from Prince of Broadway, they hit at the same time. And so many people thought it was a one-two punch when it was actually, you know, just just the one was delayed, but uh, they, they, they hit the theaters the same year. And because of that, um, yeah, they, um, I, I guess I made an impact in that world because yeah. Uh, well, to, I, to be nominated for an award in the name of one of your heroes must've been thrilling. Very true, very, very true. Um, yeah. I. I Cassavetes means everything to me, uh, you know, the way his whole approach to filmmaking. And at that time, especially I was really using his influences and 
and and kept him on my mind while I was making my films. You know, uh, the intimacy, the 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 uh, the family way of the family nature of making films, um, and uh, and also the topics I wanted to explore. So so uh, yes, quite an honor, quite an honor. And um, and that was the last time I really had to pay for one of my films because after that. I was able to find financing for Starlet. So well, I had to make those go. three films on my own dime before, uh, you know, before getting somewhat of a, an entry. <laughs> well, tell me, tell me about Starlet because you mix professional and non-professional actors seamlessly in a really good way. And this was your first time with Dree Hemingway, who's Mariel Hemingway's daughter. Yeah. Um, and this character of the adult film actress, uh, you know, it's a really it's filled with veracity. It feels so genuine. How much of it was scripted and how much did the cast bring into it? Well, I always encourage improvisation um, because I actually just love getting alternate takes. And if I have, if I'm working with a, and I'm usually blessed where I'm working with a cast that has the talent um, to do improvisation and, and comedic improvisation. So why not? Why not embrace that? Right. So but when you when you break the films down, ultimately, it, it really depends. You know, sometimes with Prince of Broadway, there was so much improv in that that I would say it was almost 50 50. Like if wow. you look at the, the, the script compared to the final product, dialogue wise, 50 percent started on the page. 50 percent came from the actors. Red Rocket is more like a 75, 25. Maybe it's even 80, 20. With Starlet, I'm not sure. Starlet was actually pretty plot driven, and actually, because we were we were working with Besedka Johnson, 86 years old, and her first time on camera, you know, there yeah. wasn't. A, we had to be very, you know, you know, she wasn't that experienced. She was wonderful, extremely talented, but you know, she wanted Great more preparation, it. and she wanted lines written for her, and and so. Um, so really, I, I forgot exactly how Starlet breaks down, but I do have to say that Dree is amazing. Dree really, uh, she, she, what makes, what I have found with actors who are great with improvisation is that they don't care if they, if they deliver a line that doesn't work or a joke that bombs. It's like, who cares? Let's just do another take. Didn't work. Move on. You know, the they beauty don't of film is that, there, there's something called editing and you only use the good stuff. Exactly. And I always tell my actors, especially now, I'm like, I'm editing this so you can trust me. I'm going to make you look good. <laughs> yeah. So, well, with Starlet, you made the move to Los Angeles. Tell me uh, about that process and how it felt moving from East Coast to West Coast and the production circumstances on the West Coast. Yeah, well, I... Um... I came out to work on a television show. I was, I was actually, I was this is Greg, the bunny, Greg, the bunny, which I am a co-creator on and had, it had several incarnations over the years and really is what allowed me to stay in the game because, you know, these indies weren't really paying rent. So, and I needed to pay for them. So um, I was lucky enough to have this show, Greg, the bunny, which had incarnations on Fox, IFC, uh, even MTV. And so it was this last little spinoff that we were doing called War in the Ape on MTV in 2010 that brought me out to LA. And I was like, you know what, I kind of, I like it out here. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it is the center of the industry. It has a lot better weather than New York. And it was while I was on that show that 
I had met some adult film stars because we had them on for cameos in this uh, on this MTV show. And um, there was one day we were shooting and I overheard one of the um, the young actor, young adult film performers that we had on set. She said something along the lines of, uh, I forgot to put my uh, clothes in the dryer. They're going to be stale when I get home. Oh, damn. And I, I thought to myself, that is the most normal everyday thing to think. <laughs> like we all, that happens to all of us, you know? And, and I thought, and, and it took, it, I realized at that moment, I'm like, what if I made a story, a very cinema verite type of approach to just showing the everyday normal life of, the, of an adult film performer and not even tell the audience that she actually works in that industry until halfway through the movie. Yeah, it takes a while before you discover what her line of work is and the mundane aspects of her life at home and especially contrasted with this woman who's 86 years old is a brilliant way to find your way into a, an otherwise taboo subject. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that's really how it came about. And then you can you can see my love of uh, Harold and Maude sort of made its way in there, you know, a relationship yeah. between an older person and a younger person. And, yeah. and, and we sort of, yeah, and so, so that's how that came about. And we had it, and it went to South by Southwest, where, you know, it found distribution and, um, and things uh, were on the way. Now, look, I, I made a film that was actually kind of hard to sell you know it is a yeah. it has a quite a uh, a graphic scene right in the middle of it um, oh yeah which, which amazon which by the way apple censors so if, if anybody's out there listening and you want to see starlet go to another platform because i rented on amazon or something yeah, yeah yeah but um and so that was the film that i honestly thought was going to open every door for me. I thought that was the one which I wasn't going to have to struggle after that to find financing or anything like that. And I was going to work, I was going to probably tackle a budget over a million on my next one. And this actually happen. got into theaters. It did. It did. It didn't do that great, but, but, no, uh, but it didn't need to do all that well because you did it on a, a tight budget. Exactly. It cost, um, from what I remember, 247,000. Wow. Yep. And, uh, we, we sh I think what really uh, made it, I think what elevated it was the visuals. You know, Radium Chung, who shot it, we shot it on what was at the time like the baby Alexa, but we had these incredible Lomo lenses, these vintage lenses, anamorphic lenses that really elevated the look of it and made it look classic. And, and so I, um, so that was the first time that I was dealing with like, with, with with a real cinematographer and right. and being able to really you know uh really tackle the visuals in the way i wanted to and the first time you worked with digital filmmaking oh well i mean if you would you could no no actually no because takeout is mini dv and then prince of ah. broadway was like early prosumer hd okay so, that's yeah. different that's video that digital is digital is different that is that is <laughs> So, but you've worked in all the forms. You'd worked in 35 millimeter. You worked on, on video, HD video. You'd worked digitally. Your next film, Tangerine, was shot on iPhones. Yes. So tell me about the decision. It's a great decision because the look of the film is exactly what it should be to convey not just the storyline, but the world in which it takes place. <laughs> Thanks, Mick. I, I appreciate that. At the time, though, 
I'm like, oh my God, this is a step back. What am I doing? You know, it's always in hindsight that we realize that we chose the right medium. Um, but what happened was that Starlet, I thought was going to open a lot of doors for me and it ended up not. I, I was waiting. I was actually waiting a couple of years where it didn't seem like there was a lot, a lot of momentum. And then um, Mark Duplass, who was a big fan of Prince of, Broad of Prince of Broadway, reached out to me and said, hey, look, I, I'm not going to be able to match with, you know, the, the 300,000 you had to work on the last one, but I can give you 100,000 if you want. And I thought, oh my God, here we go again. All right, um, <laughs> I'll do it. I got to do it. I'm a filmmaker. I got to take, take whatever I get. I can and, pinch pennies. Yeah. Yep. And because we only had 100,000, I was like, I immediately, I thought there is no way that I'm, I can consider film at all. And even high-end digital is going to be difficult on this with this sort of budget, unless I'm having people work for free. And it happened to be right at the time when the iPhone made the leap from that five to the five S where the, the HD suddenly looked really good. And there were a few apps out there that were working in conjunction with the iPhone. One of them being Filmic Pro, which right. allowed you to manually control the iPhone. And there was this other company that had just released these anamorphic adapters for the iPhone. So it was all three things happened at the same time. And I thought, why not? Why not tackle this? And um, when I went to Sundance that year, the, the following year, um, I actually thought we were going to be one of many films. I thought there were going to be 25 films shot on the iPhone and we were the only one. Wow. And I think that that's what really helped in a major way because it became a talking point. Well, one of the interesting things about the use of the iPhone was the use of the Filmic Pro app allowed you to give it a filmic look that actually adds grain that video, that digital video does not have. And these anamorphic lenses gave you a widescreen quality that is a very much an important part of painting the world in which these trans, uh, transsexual uh, prostitutes work. Uh, very much so. I, uh, you know, I, I, I take the look of my films very seriously. So even though we might be shooting on what's considered like a prosumer format, I still want it to look cinematic. And we really spend the time, especially in post-production, treating uh, treating the footage uh, to get there. So thank you. Tell me about the transition to uh, <laughs> transition to yeah. Tangerine and the, the trans uh, world and the research you did into that. Sure. Um, I live right in the middle of West Hollywood. So only about a mile from the corner of Santa Monica and Highland. And just being the fact that, you know, we, I was passing by this sort of semi-infamous corner um, all the time, I was drawn to it. I wanted to know more about it. Now, I, I say infamous because it's sort of a, it, at the time, it's been gentrified, but at the time it was sort of an infamous red light district, um, primarily uh, frequented by um, transgender prostitutes, um, uh, cross-dressers or, you know, gay hustlers. So um, it was sort of a hub and I wanted to know more about it. Um, and I learned from Prince of Broadway that the only way to do it is to really just go there. It's to really just go and, 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 and connect with people and gain their trust and, 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 uh, and work with them and collaborate with them. So that's what Chris and I did. Chris Bragash, my co-screenwriter on the film. We decided to go there. We went to the uh, LGP, LGBT center, which was one block away in which they had a courtyard and many of the uh, youth that would hang out in that area hung out at that courtyard. And I remember seeing Maya Taylor 
And it was just like, just like the way I saw Susanna's son who, in, from Red Rocket. I mean, I saw Maya Taylor across this courtyard. She must have been 35 to 40 feet away from me, yet she had this aura. She had this it quality thing that just said, you know, she could be a star. I could see this person on the big screen for two hours. And so we went over and we just introduced ourselves to Maya and Maya returned the enthusiasm to us. She said, this sounds great. I, this sound, I'm a performer. I want to tell this. I want to tell my story. And how do we, how do we proceed? So it was really, and then, and then Maya opened up that world to us. So she introduced us to Kiki Rodriguez. She introduced us to all the other uh, her friends and the establishments that they would frequent and just tell us stories. And we absorbed and absorbed over the next few months until we were ready to go. So first you find the world and then you find the story. Tell me about how that came about. Yeah, well, that was that was one in which we went in not knowing the story. Um, Starlet, we knew the story. Um, it really depends on, you know, it, it depends on the film. But um, like Prince of Broadway, we had spent a lot of time there before figuring out what the story was. And one day it just came to us. Uh, we were actually sitting in a... Um, what do they call it? An Arby's or something in that and, uh -huh. just, and just sitting and listening to stories. And it was one day that Kiki Rodriguez happened to, I think she was uh, a little distraught because she uh, thought that her, and she, she's been outspoken about this. This is why I can talk about it, but she thought that her, perhaps her boyfriend was cheating on her with a cisgender woman. And when we heard that, we said, wait a minute there, there's a plot point right there. There's, <laughs> there's something, there's a seed, there's a spark. We can, we, and then we started fictionalizing it from that point on. We actually just had a brainstorming session where I said, okay, say you did, what would happen if this played out? Like, would you ever pursue this woman? Uh, how would that play out? And next thing you know, we were, we were just working this, this, this uh, very, Three act structured story out uh, beat by beat in the in the back of an Arby's. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about working with non pros because the performances you've gotten in all of your films have been incredibly impressive. They do not feel like people who are new at the craft, but you have to be part drama teacher and part director when you're doing that, which is a double onus to put on a filmmaker. Well, again, I've been really, truly blessed uh, by finding many, uh, many of my, my casts have come with this talent already, the talent of improvisation. And, and so I, uh, and also I have my wife now, uh, Samantha Kwan, who uh, produced on Red Rocket, and she was, uh, and she started we started working together on Florida project when I brought her on to help me with the children. I said, I need help with the kids. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. a, she's an actor herself and she, and she, and she was also, she coached over the years. So she came on the Florida project to help me with the children. And then I went ahead and hired Bria Benaitha and Mela murder as the two mothers who both had Bria had no time in front of the, no experience in front of the camera and Mela had very little. So I said, to Sam, I'm like, can you also help me with the moms? And so <laughs> at that point, it became a relationship that Samantha and I have where she's able to work with my first timers and non-professionals and get them to a place where they're extremely comfortable. So um, she can coach them uh, and, and get them ready yes. for screen appearance. 
Exactly. And it really, it really helps a lot because in the past I've had to do that all myself. And that takes a lot of time. You have to, you know, you have to spend a lot of time with uh, somebody who, I mean, I, I look, I can't go in front of a camera. I'm too intimidated. Um, so I, you know, I, you have to spend the time to get that person to the place where they are comfortable. They feel safe. That's very important. They feel safe. They feel comfortable. They trust you and they're having fun too. Fun yeah. is a major part of it. Well, tell me about earning the trust because I would imagine in the trans community, there'd be a great fear of them being used and manipulated in a way that because they've been marginalized, that they don't want to become cartoon characters or, you know, uh, objects of, uh, with a lack of veracity. Thank you for asking that question. That's, that's very important for me. Um, how to go about this in a way that's uh, the most responsible and the most ethical. I, I, I always approach these stories in a way that I'm, I'm thinking to myself, if a filmmaker came into my life and said, I want to make a fictionalized film about your world and perhaps even cast you to play somebody similar to yourself, how would I want that filmmaker to do it? And that's how I approach it. And I remember telling Maya and Kiki right off the bat in the beginning, look, I want you to, to approve of this script. I want you to approve of the cut. I, I will give you approval. Um, I will, uh, you know, I want them involved, very much involved. Um, so that it's it, part of the filmmaking process is actually elevating their voices. And so um, it's just about, it's about being very transparent and it's about being honest. And that's, that's my approach every single time. Um, yeah. And, and I got no pushback from Maya and Kiki, if anything, full embrace. I mean, they really, I think what happens is that when there's a, there is a, an underrepresented community, they have the desire to, you know, obviously get their stories told and their, you know, and their message out and their message out. So, so it was, it was, uh, it was, it was with almost all of my films, there has been this universal embrace, which has been incredible. Well, because you're telling stories about things that not many people tell film stories about, uh, and you really have carved out this, this subgenre of your own about the kind of uh, what could be the underbelly of society, but seeking it from the inside out rather than the outside in. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one to come along is probably your highest profile film with the Florida Project. Um, which also brought you to the Academy Awards um, because Willem Dafoe was nominated. But here's a story about Orlando that pits the glamorous Disney version of Orlando against the people who have to work <laughs> at Disney World and the people who can't afford even those jobs to take those on or are unable to do that. So tell me how that came about. Well, my uh, co-screenwriter, Chris Bragash, sent me this article about children living in extended stay motels outside of Walt Disney World. Uh, children who were living in poverty, uh, whose families were barely getting by and having to live almost you know, week by week, if not sometimes night by night in these motels. So there was this obvious, very, uh, very sad um, sort of uh, uh, juxtaposition between what we think of as like, the greatest place on earth for children. I forgot the actual quote. What is it? The, the happiest place on earth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and what's really happening, you know? So, so I, um, 
that it was really just about at that point, like all of my other films about getting on the road and going there and, 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 and hearing stories from people who actually, you know, from those who actually have lived experience, those living in the motels, but not, but not just them, from also the community. You know, I, I think Willem Dafoe's character of Bobby is very much based on, on the men that we met who managed these motels. Um, one in particular um, by the name of John Manning, who really opened his world to us. And um, I actually, when we first walked onto the property of one of these motels, he, he came right up to us and actually in a very, very aggressive way, was like, what, what are you two guys doing here? What do you want? And we realized at that moment that he was actually, he thought that we might be, you know, predators. He actually was protecting the children on his property. Wow. And that's this, that moment obviously translated right to the scene where Willem Dafoe is kicking the pedophile off of his property, you know? So I, I, I met these men, I saw their, what they were going through, their struggle to keep uh, their, their community safe um, and having to deal with, you know, what they had to deal with, but then also meeting mother, single mothers, single parents in general, and, and the children who lived there who were still, who were still children and still full of, and, and full of life and wonder and not really completely aware of, of their predicament. And um, so we spent, you know, several months there until the, 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 the script just found itself, you know, uh, very organically. So the the great counterpoint with Disney World and that life is so powerful that it seemed to reach your your widest audience yet. Yes, plus Willem Dafoe helped yeah. a lot. <laughs> so and, tell uh, me about the experience of the Oscars. Well, um, you know, I I uh, I don't really remember much of it except like my, my <laughs> wife and I were near the back and we had that little care package that I think it was Jimmy Kimmel who was the host that year gave to everybody. And, uh, um, it, Hey, it was, it was a fun experience. It was great. I mean, it was definitely, I was so proud of Willem, you know, it was, yeah. uh, you know, and that, that meant everything to me and, and, uh, you know, well, so it was also working with a movie star, um, for the first time, uh, even though he's also surrounded by people who had less experience than that. Um, so, but it, it's also Hollywood giving its validation to you as a filmmaker. That is true. That is true. And, and, uh, so, you know, I'm just full of gratitude there. It was really nice to be finally like a part of the industry to a certain degree. And, uh, and, and also I just consider myself so blessed to work with that you know, it, it, it takes a certain type, you know, uh, to be able to, you tell, you know, Willem Dafoe is, and is, is almost like royalty in, in Hollywood. He's been around for decades. He's done, he's incredibly talented, obviously. And he's, he has like, you know, iconic roles and I'm telling him, Hey man, come to Orlando where I'm going to surround you with children and first timers. <laughs> and, and he was like, he was totally down for it. Yeah, quite honestly, I think he was thought he was getting himself into an iPhone movie because I had just come from Tangerine and he's, he's one, he's an artist. So he's just down for experimenting. He wants to try new things. He's up for the challenge. So, so then I was like, no, actually we're shooting this on 35, but it's still going to be 
it's still going to be crazy, Willem, get ready. And um, no, but he was wonderful. He was such a trooper. You know, it is a little difficult sometimes, you know, especially with children. Um, you know, it's not exactly, it's, a, it's not the smoothest uh, yeah. experience, but he was always great and uh, patient. Let's just say that. He was very patient and very giving. And he was there for uh, Bria, Benaitha, and the other first timers and just yeah, there yeah. to support them and there to make them feel good and and have the sometimes even you know on a Hollywood film probably what would happen is that you would shoot his stuff out and he would leave and you would bring in a body uh, you would bring in a stand-in to you know to shoot the other side you know right. no he was he was always like nope I want to be here for them I want them to you know I want them to have that eye contact to have that you know that connection he's he's just a wonderful wonderful guy and I can't wait to work with him again well, it had to be a great opportunity for him as an artist as well. And I know when you say artist, he's also a painter, in addition to being a terrific actor. But for him to have the opportunity that may have been denied by a successful Hollywood career of doing something with such veracity and such, uh, such a grounded kind of storytelling that he's not often able to evoke. Possibly. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. What was the motivation to shoot it in 35 millimeter? You'd worked in all of these different formats. And by that time, virtually every movie was being shot digitally. Um, and 35 millimeter cameras are more cumbersome to work with. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the choice to make a Verite style movie on 35. Well, you know, I had the means to, at that, I had the budget on Florida Project to, to, to be able to, you know, to afford it, number one. And, um, and I wasn't going to let that opportunity go by. Uh, you know, I, I love the look of film. I, um, I, aesthetically, that's like the, the format that really speaks to me. Um, and right now, you know, especially right now where, you know, almost everything is going digital, um, I see this as a time where filmmakers who have the means uh, should do what they can do to, you know, to support Kodak and to keep uh, that me the medium of film alive. You know, it was I'm talking about celluloid. Celluloid is what created this art form, and we shouldn't forget that. And even though we have this new, cheaper, perhaps faster uh, medium, it, we shouldn't abandon the the original um, and the one that actually I think to this day still can't be duplicated with, I mean, you can't achieve what film can do with digital, no matter what. I, I, I personally believe that. So, so I was in a place where I was able to afford it and I said, you know, I'm going to do it. And I, I worked with Alexis Zabe, who is an incredible cinematographer. Um, and, uh, and yeah. And so, so right oh. now, unless there, unless a new digital format comes around, that'll give me an aesthetic that's so different from film that it will actually be, you know, it, there will be a reason to shoot digitally. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to film right now, really dedicated to celluloid and dedicated to supporting uh, Kodak. Well, it also made Florida Project your most formalist kind of film. It, <laughs> it, it really is glossy in, in not in a way that, that detracts from its verite style, but it is the most formalist of your films, I would say. That's true. And we were shooting with, you know, classic vintage Panavision anamorphic lenses, yeah. give it that classic feel. And, and to a certain degree, it's what, it's the aesthetic that I brought to Red Rocket. 
mine MEI had to drop from 35 to 16, but still our approach was very similar in, you know, in just the, in, in my framing, in my coverage, um, in just the controlled nature of, of my, of the look. And almost everything these days is shot in a two, three, five format, widescreen format. Mm -hmm. So did you shoot super 16? We shot super 16 with anamorphic lenses made for 16, Beautiful. which is very rare. Actually, to tell you the truth, I don't think one other feature has been shot that way. There have been other widescreen 16 millimeter films, but they use, they either crop, like doing a technoscope sort of thing, right? You know, or they're using 35 millimeter anamorphics on 16 and you have to crop right and left. Um, right. So we were blessed by finding these Panavision lenses that had only been used on music videos and commercials. And so- um, So you're shooting yeah. squeezed imagery onto the frame, which then is expanded through the lenses of the projection. Exactly. And giving you a 240 uh, aspect ratio uh, with with all of the characteristics of a 35 millimeter anamorphic on the 16. So the same the the same bokeh, the same bend, the same sort of flares. Right, which are a, a major part of what you do. The 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 distortion of some of the wide shots is a, a, sort of a signature of yours in your in your widescreen pictures. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. You know, I, in this case, I have to say with Red Rocket, Drew Daniels, who shot it, um, he's an amazing cinematographer. He, uh, I got to know his work because um, he shot uh, films for Trey Schultz, the last one being Waves. And I was very impressed by his work on that. And so, and he had also uh, lived part of his life in Texas. So I thought he would be perfect for this. I reached out to him and said, I want to shoot on 16. And we started exploring uh, the look and I was bringing, hey, for me, I was like bringing a lot of, um, uh, uh, I would say genre films in the early seventies, uh, Italian, wow. especially Italian oh, yeah. genre films of the early seventies. They shot widescreen all the time. Yep. Yeah. And so, and you can, I bet you can see a lot of those Umberto Lenzi zooms. Yeah. In <laughs> and, but, yeah. But, but also influenced by the Euro crime stuff and the, and the, and the, and the Italian sex comedies. So I'm talking like Fernando de Leo and, and um, Dino Rossi, uh, Dino Risi, sorry, um, and uh, and others like that, those guys, and um, and of course Lena Wolfmuller. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I was showing him this that stuff, and I actually even showed him an Umberto Lenzi movie called um, An Ideal Place to Kill. I believe it had several <laughs> titles. One is called Dirty Pictures. It's an Ornella Moody film, and he said are we making this sort of movie? And I said, no, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's more about the approach to the subject matter and the craft. I want you to just to absorb it. You know, it's just, it's been on my mind and he goes, okay, cool. I got it, but let me show you this. And then he, he showed me, he, he, he brought me Sugarland Express, which ah. I had not seen in 30 years since wow. NYU. And I fell back in love with it. And um, Vilmos Zygmunt's amazing cinematography in that film and the way they captured that same area because, you know, Sugarland is, is outside of Houston and we shot right. outside of Houston. So And the environmental photography is so spectacular of seeing the world in which it's set. Most definitely. And, and so our approach to shooting those vistas and landscapes came very much like from influenced by Spielberg and, and Vilmos. And um, so, so that was really what was on our mind when shooting Red Rocket. 
So with with Red Rocket, you return to the adult film world, but it's people who've left the adult film world. In a way, you could say that Red Rocket is an extremely loose spinoff of Starlet, or maybe it's just in the same cinematic universe. But we definitely, you know, make references to it. And for those who know Starlet and um, and it actually, to tell you the truth, Red Rocket comes from my time uh, having spent in that world uh, during Starlet. Um, does that make sense? Like the research yeah, yeah. done the, during Starlet led to Red Rocket. Right. So tell me about the process of that, because now you've taken it to Texas. You've taken it. It's people who used to be working in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what inspired you to do it away from the center, the San Fernando Valley center of the adult film world and taking these renegades off to Texas. Sure. Um, well, when I was actually doing research for Starlet, I met a handful of Mikey Sabres. Mikey Saber is the lead character played by Simon Rex. Right. Um, and realizing that there was this archetype in this world, this in the industry. Um, they even have a, uh, a slang term applied to them, suitcase pimp. And <laughs> essentially these are, this is male talent that lives off of female talent in the adult film world. Uh, they, it doesn't represent all men in that world, obviously, but there is definitely a particular type. And when we started meeting more than a couple, we realized, huh, okay, this is a this is a a character that I hadn't I haven't seen uh, on the big screen before. Um, I would like to explore this because there was something about these men. I was of two minds when I was hanging out with these guys. Um, on the on the surface level, they are very charming, very appealing. Uh, they're actually quite entertaining and sometimes very funny. So I was laughing along, hearing all their, their crazy stories. And then at night I would go home uh, and I would be thinking, why was I laughing at that stuff? That stuff is pretty <laughs> horrible. And they've had like negative effects on many people's lives. You could consider them pretty reprehensible people. And so, and so I was very torn and I was thinking, why, how did, why, did, why was I, I have two minds with them? They obviously were manipulating me and, and, and having an effect on me. And I thought if I could make a character, if I could do a character study of one of these types of guys and put the audience in the same place that I was, you know, even if it might be an uncomfortable place, you know, rooting for him one minute. And then rooting for his demise, the, the next, you know, yeah. that was my, that was my goal. And um, so, yeah, so, so Red Rocket was really, was really my way of tackling that. Yeah. He's a snake charmer uh, <laughs> or the snake. Uh, so tell me about the casting process. Well, we, uh, so this film came about because of COVID because after uh after my last film, Florida Project, I started developing another film up in Vancouver for quite a while, for over two years. And wow. um, talk about entrenchment. I was really entrenched. It was, about the, it was about drug user activism up there and how they're 30 years ahead in terms of, you know, uh, how they, how they uh, deal with drug addiction and drug users. And, uh, and so, so anyway, this was uh, my next film and Willem was a part of it. And it still is. It'll still happen. But uh, but anyway, um, January, February of 2020 rolled around and suddenly we realized that this film that required hundreds of people to be on the street, you know, it's about activism, could not be done during a pandemic. And so we were it just happened to be that my wife and I were back in Los Angeles during the time where they actually closed the borders. And we were just mourning like this film that we had been 
developing for two years. And then my producer called me up and said, well, look, this is, looks like it's not going to end anytime soon, but I think I can find you a little bit of money to make another, a smaller film that can be done safely during this pandemic. And I said, okay, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> but it just happened to be that this time we had this idea on this back burner called Red Rocket that we had actually already broken five years ago. We knew beginning, middle and end. So all it required was a little more research and then fleshing it out. And that's, and so it was really a fast process. We went to Texas, we started just getting into hard prep. And it was at that time that we were just thinking about all the names that were possible for this. And, um, I, and so my, you went to the adult film world for your Mikey. Well, not really. I mean, okay. I, I know that there is that it's known that Simon Rex uh, had a little bit of part of that in his past. I mean, he had some nude pictorials or whatever before he became a, a VJ uh, on MTV in the early 90s. But it, I didn't go to him for that reason, to tell you the truth. I, I actually have always been fond of Simon Rex. I We're about the same age. I remember when he broke on MTV. I remember a few years later during the scary movie franchise that he became like the lead of three, four and five. I remember when he had the Dirt Nasty album that was a hit. And then when social media rolled or came about and he started having a presence on Vine and YouTube and Instagram that I said to myself, I'm like, he's a survivor and he's sticking to it. You know, the industry may not be giving him you know, the roles he deserves, but this guy is sticking to it. And there was something that at that time, this was right after Florida Project. I said, if we ever make Red Rocket, it should be this guy, Simon Rex. So <laughs> obviously then four or five years passed, um, we pivoted to back to Red Rocket. And then, then that was the time to reach out to him. And through a friend, I was able to reach out directly to Simon. And he said, dude, I'm just sitting up in Joshua Tree doing nothing. It's COVID. I sure whatever you need. Uh, and I said, can you be in Texas in a few days? And he said, yep, I'll be there. Yep, I just uh, I'll get in the car tomorrow. And so, and the, it's his movie. I mean, he dominates almost every scene. He is. Yeah, it's. I don't know if or there are very few scenes without him. Um, right. He he and he he yeah he delivered exactly what how I thought he would. He just um. He, and he's also just like Willem, like just the nicest guy to work with. Again, surrounding him with a lot of first timers, asking him to do stuff that he's probably not used to, meaning it was, this was a lot, this was definitely one of those indie, indie productions where we were eating a lot of pizza. He had to drive himself to set, you know, it was one of those. And he was totally, he was a trooper. He was great. And he was also, I remember when he landed in Galveston, Texas, three days after I asked him to, uh, to come, he came with almost all of his monologues um, memorized. Wow. Which was pretty impressive because those Mikey Saber rants were, they all, go. <laughs> they were all scripted. They were several pages long. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, well, do you see yourself as a fully independent filmmaker or do you want to step into the Hollywood machine? Yeah, it's, it's a hard. Or would question. you like to do both? <laughs> I would love to find a way to do both because again, yeah, I, I grew up on Hollywood fair. I it's, it's, I'm still have 
quite an affinity for it. And I would love to try my hand at something bigger to do action set pieces, to perhaps tackle a horror film. I don't know. Um, but at the same time, it has taken a while to get to this place. And I'm finally, you know, getting respect, <laughs> gaining, <laughs> I have gained respect by being in this, in this space. And people seem to like the, the stuff I'm doing in this space. Um, I'm still have to, you know, like every other filmmaker, indie filmmaker out there, you have to figure out how to make money doing it. But, right. but, uh, but Hey, I'm full of gratitude. I'm very happy to be able to make films. You know, that's what I wanted to do since I was six years old. And the fact that I'm, I'm doing it and that's my primary source of income. Hey, it's like a dream. It is a dream come true. And unlike most independent filmmakers, you actually get them on the big screen, not just at festival screenings, but theatrical release, whether it's wide or limited, doesn't matter. You get a theatrical release. Yeah, it, that's very important to me. The theatrical experience is, is something that I think is, uh, is near and dear to me as just a moviegoer. But also I feel that, you know, we, we can't forget that, that it's, it's what helps elevate a film's importance to a certain degree, the way you put a film out into the world, you know, the way you present it to the world is very important. And I think some films are getting lost in this new age of streaming. Um, and so I insist on it. It's part of my contract, you know, it has to, I will only go with a distributor who will give me some sort of theatrical release. And thank God, you know, A24 has been wonderful about it with my last two movies. That's great. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to see what's next. Uh, thanks so much, Mick. I really appreciate it. And again, I'm such a fan of yours and a fan of, uh, and a fan of your podcast. So it's an honor to be on. Thank you. Well, Mutual Admiration Society. Thank you so much. See you soon. You too. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.